Hey everybody, this is Nate Smoyer and you're listening to the Tech Nest Podcast. This is the show where we sit down with the leaders in real estate and technology to find out what they're doing to transform the way we buy, sell, and invest in real estate. If you've got an interest in real estate and technology, stick around, you're in the right place. Hey everybody, we got a great show planned for you today. This is going to be uh, an interesting conversation because we're not talking about a tech product like we typically do that's impacting the real estate space. We're actually talking about a book and then all the things that went into that book that's covering both real estate and the tech that's impacting real estate. So don't think of this as a book about prop tech. Think about it as, well, the title of the book is called Rethinking Real Estate. And perhaps that's exactly what we should be doing. We should be rethinking how we're utilizing and how we view and buy, sell, and invest in real estate. Uh, Jor Puleg, and I apologize, Jor, I know I got your name wrong every single time, but uh, thanks for your patience with me. Uh, he is an author, he's a founder, advisor, consultant, and he's written this book to share how he sees the future of real estate and how we should be rethinking it we go into all kinds of details about the book, the content of the book, why he wrote it, why it's important now. And then we even talk about some industry trends of what he thinks about with modular building, 3D homes. And yes, we talk about WeWork. You're going to love this episode. I think it's a great one. Uh, kick back, relax, enjoy the show. Well, hey, Jor, welcome to the show. Hi, Nate. Glad to be here. Finally. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad we got a chance to connect and... Um, before we go, we both had a, a little bit of a laugh for the show. I, you know, I, I apologize. I really want to, every time we have a guest, I always ask and make sure, hey, how do I say your name? Mm-hmm. And I know I already introduced you as Drawer, but can you, can you please let everyone know first how to say your name correctly and then who you are and what you do? So my name is Drawer, which, which means freedom in Hebrew, if you care. Uh, and I am the author of Rethinking Real Estate, which is a new book coming out this month uh, or next month uh, about the impact of technology on how real estate assets are designed, operated, and valued. I spent the last two decades as a technology and real estate executive, so 10 years in real estate development, uh, a few years running my own startup, a few years running a digital media and advertising company. And over the past three years, I've been mostly advising large landlords and large real estate investors on technology and innovation and investing a few, and advising a few startups and venture capital investors from the other side, people that are targeting the real estate industry from the tech side. Yeah. So you're checking all the boxes. You got author, founder, advisor, consultant, husband, father, yeah. cook. <laughs> The whole nine cook. Okay. So is there a cookbook coming too? <laughs> I doubt it, but we'll see. A cookbook for VCs. Maybe. I also, one other thing I have to mention, I'm also the co-chair of the Urban Land Institute's Technology and Innovation Council here in New York. So you're a big, yeah, the largest, I think, member organization of real estate professionals in the world, setting standards for the industry, trying to promote the debate. Uh, around better and more sustainable use of land in general and real estate assets in particular. Highest and best use. Uh, it's one of the most basic rules yep. in real estate. But So we can talk about anything, but today we're, we are going to specifically talk about your book uh, and then we'll get into some other topics. I'm sure, you know, I'll probably digress into something. Who knows? Um, but the, you know, the, the book is titled Rethinking Real Estate. Um, and I'm actually really excited for this because I don't think there's, there's not really much written in long form on the topic of prop tech, uh, where we're at today, how we even got here. Um, I think, uh, there's like one or two other books that really maybe tackle that or, or in the tackle that, but you know, walk me through, what's the big idea behind your book, Rethinking Real Estate? So first, it's called rethinking real estate and not something like, you know, prop tech something or disrupting this or tech revolution. Uh, because I think that the interesting impact of technology in real estate is mostly indirect. So it's less the technologies that are being developed for real estate, but more about how technology is changing the way people work, the way people live, the way people socialize, get married, have kids, eat, even die. Uh, all of that changes the way real estate is used and ultimately also changes the way it is operated and even valued. Uh, So that's just talking about the title. In terms of the big idea, I think it's the fact that technology now, both directly and indirectly, is really undermining everything we take for granted about real estate. 
So from a high level, the fact that it's an asset that uh, is just inherently valuable regardless of what you do with it, just because it exists and it is there. Uh, its ability to serve as a hedge against inflation, its ability to generate stable income for relatively passive owners. Uh, it's generally the fact that it is an asset and not an operating business historically. Uh, all of that is now changing. So it's no longer enough to just own a building and just to come and collect a check every year and, or every month. Uh, but now landlords are being pushed to be much more creative, much more proactive, uh, and to face a level of uncertainty that I think uh, didn't exist in real estate previously. Okay, th there's a million one different things mm -hmm. I want to go in that direction. Immediately when you said it's not to be an active business, in my head I was like, storage, let's talk about storage or uh -huh. co-working, let's talk about co-working. But before yeah. we get into all that, how did you get, what, where did you get started in real estate? Like what was the journey that led to, you know, your years of experience working in around real estate and tech and now, you know, putting a lot of this into one book. So there's, there's two entry points in the journey. One, uh, about 18 years ago, I finished my military service in Israel. And in Israel, uh, we have certain jobs that Israelis just don't like doing, including construction. So we have a lot of people that come from other countries to do that, uh, whether from Eastern Europe or certain countries in Asia. And the government actually said, you know, if, if you as a, as a veteran or a soldier that was just released want to go and work in one of these jobs for six months, we'll pay you an extra bonus at the end of those six months. So I said, okay, you know, I, I finished my military service. I went traveling and then I wanted to travel more and to study overseas. And I said, okay, this is a good deal. I can work for six months and then I'll get an extra bonus and, you know, that will help finance my, my studies. So I went and I became a construction worker. So for six months, I actually worked with my hands building a few single family houses on the coast of the Mediterranean. Actually, the best job I ever had because it was really stress-free. I slept really well. I ate really well. I was probably like 30 pounds less than I'm now. And <laughs> the best time. Uh, a few years later, I found myself as a partner in an advertising agency in Beijing, China, of all places. That's a natural transition. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I totally but transitioned. Yeah. In, the in the middle, I spent a few years in Australia studying uh, media and communications and literature and kind of developing websites and helping local businesses with their communications and, and digital advertising. And then I decided to go to China, look for adventures, found two people who had an advertising agency that was doing work for some great clients, such as Ikea and some airlines and hotel chains, but weren't doing any online things. So we became partners and we started offering, you know, website development, online marketing, newsletters, all sorts of new things in 2005 in China, a country with 50 million internet users at the time. Wow. Wow. Uh, and many of our clients were real estate companies. So again, hotel chains, large retailers, real estate developers, mostly residential. And I found myself spending more and more of my time really doing real estate marketing. And very quickly, that marketing also wasn't marketing anymore. It was my clients going to me and saying, hey, would you mind coming and having a look at this piece of land and telling us what you think? Can we build a shopping mall here? You know, you seem to kind of be connected to the, to the consumer world and you understand where the wind is blowing. And we're in a market that doesn't have any clear benchmarks, doesn't have any service providers like you have in the US where you go to CBRE or Cushman and Wakefield and they tell you what the rent is going to be because yeah, yeah. nobody built the kind of thing that you're planning to build here yet. Uh, especially around retail. Uh, so I, I gradually became more specialized in that world. And one of my developer clients, real estate developers, offered me a job. Uh, so that was a Dutch a publicly listed company that was doing development projects in China. Mm -hmm. uh, and I started as their kind of all around marketing guy and kind of became the head of marketing as the company grew. So I, I wasn't really promoted. We were just like five people and then there were just more people under us. So we had to give ourselves bigger <laughs> that titles. That is the best way to move to the top. Yeah. I mean, so, it kind of, you know, stinks because you really are at the bottom. Let's be real. But yeah, you want to work at the top, just, hey, be your own boss, so to speak. And, and it was fun. Like, you know, it wasn't a startup. It was a real estate developer. But when we started, we were five people. And when I left, we were 400 people. So wow. it grew quite tremendously over a little less than a decade. Uh, so but anyway, I found myself heading all of our marketing, which initially was mostly giving the company a name, building a website, preparing yeah, presentations yeah. for partners and banks. But then it was also about, okay, looking at pieces of land, working with a team of analysts to underwrite and make assumptions about stuff that it's very hard to make assumptions about. Uh, and then overseeing all the soft aspects of our project. So really being around the table with the architects and engineers and finance people 
and pushing back against their plans with my <laughs> views of the market. You know, like, oh no, people prefer this or people have less kids than you think or Zara likes to have an escalator here, but not there. And Uniqlo, they like it two floors this way and not that way. So really being involved in the development process down to, you know, choosing the tiles and calculating how many bathrooms should or shouldn't be based on all sorts of cultural uh, habits. Uh, and then I gradually turned into more of a deal maker because I also had to oversee all of our leasing, mostly of retail stores yeah, in our shopping yeah. malls. So yeah. I oversaw a few hundred retail negotiations. Some of them did directly, some of them wow. also agents. So with, with companies such as Zara, H&M, Uniqlo, Sephora, Mango. Uh, and then I transitioned into more of a, an even big, bigger deal maker role, really just overseeing our dispositions and acquisitions. So buying land to develop large commercial projects or selling whole projects to large institutional owners such as REITs or private equity funds or silver and wealth funds. Uh, then after 10 years in China, I decided I had enough. In the middle, I did my master's degree in economic history just for fun. Oh, you had so much spare time in between all these big deals. You just went- I took, yeah, so I took a break in the middle. So after five and a half years in China, I went to London, did my master's there, came back for another five years in China. Uh-huh. And my master's was in economic history because that's a discipline that kind of can, you can throw as many things as you like into it. So it's economics sure, sure. and business, but also sociology and anthropology and history, of course. And it kind of, it suited me well. And it relates very much to what I do today. But anyway, after 10 years in China, I decided it's time to leave. And I had an itch to really go back to the tech, tech industry for real. And yeah. I had a crazy idea for an app that I wanted to build, which was a location-based social network, a tool that forces you to interact with real people around you. So even if you start on your phone, you see interesting things and interesting conversations that are happening within walking distance. And the idea was that it would be kind of a, a digital icebreaker to help people. Yeah, interact. yeah. B- find five people who were born the same month as you. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> yeah, but, but the idea was... But you're in the Apple store. <laughs> yeah, but not to, be, not to be a dating app. So to be yeah, something yeah, okay. that, you know, a friending app or just a neighboring app. Uh, it was a wonderful idea, in, like emotionally, but it wasn't like a, a great business. But anyway, that I started designing an app and I started building it with another friend. And before we knew it, we got featured by Apple on the front page of the App Store. Wow. Uh, like best new app of September 2015. And suddenly, as I was planning to leave China, I suddenly have 30,000 users in the US uh, because of that feature. So I was like, okay, let's go to America and see what's going on there. Uh, I had some family here and I knew that I wanted to leave China and I knew that I want to move to another big city in the world. And uh, New York wasn't my first choice. Tokyo was, but New York was like top three. So I said, okay, let's go to New York, see what's going on there. Uh, I chased the app dream for a while, but it didn't really go too well uh, for various reasons. Uh, But what it did do is really push me back towards real estate again, because many of the people who were interested in the app were either owners of real estate assets, so university campuses, sporting stadiums, music venues, multifamily owners, co-working companies. So anyone who has a lot of people inside a physical space and wants to create some engagement and interaction with these people in a fun new way. Yeah. Uh, and I realized that there's something there for me to do, but that the direction itself for the app just didn't interest me. I was like, I don't want to build a tenant engagement app. I don't want to build a white label, whatever, sure. check-in thing for, for co-working spaces. But there's a bigger theme here that does interest me and that's how can software be used to impact the value of an asset? And right. I started researching it properly, took a break from the app, and, and I realized that there's a million interesting things that are happening that people are not aware of, that they have implications that I think are very interesting, especially from an institutional investor's point of view. So the conversation was a lot about brokers and selling and buying, but I was like, no, but there's a bigger thing here that really impacts the asset itself and how, you know, the nature of the asset, the nature of its cash flow the way it is valued, its cap rates, the, the intensity of operation that it requires. And I thought it's really, really interesting. And I also realized, actually, I never thought of myself as dealing with prop tech or whatever that word is. But actually, for the last 10 years in China, I was dealing with technology all the time, particularly because we we're developing retail in the most kind of mm-hmm. radical and advanced market in the world. So we were always looking at like sensors and location-based services and mobile payments and tracking and 
and using all, multiple so these are like all the peripheral technologies are having an impact on how real estate is utilized, mm-hmm. whether we designed for that yeah. or not. Yeah. And also, I think just specializing in retail development, there's a lot of things that are part for the course in retail that are now suddenly becoming relevant in office and in the industrial and in multifamily, you know, yeah, thinking yeah. about multiple constituencies and not just about entities that sign the lease, but about anyone that visits a building and branding yeah. and, and again, being proactive all the time and earning your, your keep every day, not just every five years. Uh, Okay, so uh, there's so much in there. Long and story. I, yeah, it's all, it's all good. I mean, it's kind you of like for it. you and I have some similarities. <laughs> like I, you know, I, I, one of my first uh, physical jobs was building homes, but it wasn't on the coast of the Mediterranean. It was actually an old dump that we know <laughs> was underneath of a parking lot. That we, I still see the houses I built, by the way, when I go and visit my parents. In my yeah, when I go hometown. home, I see the ones I helped build too. I can't say they're amazing. But, you know, in, in 2004, Five mm-hmm. when I got started building websites. Yeah, I, I bought my way into a multi-level marketing scheme. Mm-hmm. Uh, got a, a website software package for like three hundred fifty bucks, and then I used to cold call through the phone book uh-huh. uh, to, to draw up business to to build websites for people. I didn't even have a, a, a computer with wide, uh, internet. I had to go to the college, <laughs> use the computer in the hallway to build wow. websites and I wasn't even a student, but, um, so the, so many interesting similarities. So obviously real estate is coming a long way. There's so many things impacting, you know, one of my coworkers the other day asked me about fetch and I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. They facilitate, you know, package delivery for uh, yes, yes, yes. condominiums. Yeah. Well, a huge issue, a huge issue, multifamily developers who were planning their projects 10 years ago, we're not thinking through even just 10 years ago, let alone 20 yeah, years ago. Even five, I think they didn't really. They, they were not thinking that people would have the groceries genuinely delivered mm-hmm. on a, you know, twice a week basis. Yeah. And then they, they would have everything that, you know, I get my dog food delivered from Chewy and I get my clothing delivered from Levi's and I get non-perishables on Amazon subscription. Yeah. It's all just drops the house. I don't go. Right. I mean, we get five packages a day now with a baby in the house. It's, yeah. It's so, there's so many of these different things that are impacting development real estate. And it sounds like you're, you're trying to capture a lot of that to, to, you know, you're not just put into a book, but then also help us rethink how we're leveraging and, and utilizing real estate. And while I get the importance of this, I want to hear from you. Why is this so important enough to go through the absolute stressful, painful, tedious, long, arduous process of actually writing it down. <laughs> so for me, I mean, you know, you, you write a book because you can't not write a book. Like you, you only do it once you have no choice and it comes out of you. I've always wanted to write a book, but here I really find myself with a lot of things to say and feeling that they're so relevant to such a huge industry and that there's just nobody's talking about them the way I would. Uh, and my book, again, it's not an overview of like all the new cool things that, that happened in the last five minutes or everything you should yeah, install. Yeah, that's or the Texas podcast. That's where yeah. we talk about all the latest and greatest. <laughs> right. So, I mean, it, it, it's actually, there's a lot of history in there. So why are even the things that we currently have, why are they the way they are? You know, why do we have office buildings that look the way they do? And why do we have department stores and shopping malls? And why do people live in apartment buildings? And where do these buildings come from? And how were they shaped by technology? And all of these things that we take for granted, I first show how they became what they are. And some of them became what they are very recently. You know, New York, 150 years ago, barely had an apartment building, a single apartment building that was just Mm -hmm. designed to be an apartment building. It had hotels and it had tenement houses or converted single family houses. Uh, So even the idea of living in the, in the same apartment building with people was considered very radical in the 1870s. Uh, New York was also a world leader in, in tram ridership, which is something that doesn't exist in New York today and, and shaped the city significantly. So a lot of things that happened and, and helped shape our cities and our buildings and some of them, why did they stay? Why did they disappear? And then trying to draw from that on how some of the new things that we're seeing today, how they will impact uh, our assets and how they're impacting already on the ages or kind of in the most advanced markets, mm. uh, both in the West and also in, in Asia. So who can, who's going to get the most out of this book? Is it going to be actual prop tech industry insiders? Is it brokers and real estate agents? Is it the general public? Who really should be picking up the book to read it? So anyone who 
has something to do with real estate. I don't, I mean, the general public, people that are interested in history and technology will definitely enjoy this book and it's written to be accessible to them. Uh, but I think anyone that owns buildings, that designs buildings, that, that handles planning processes, uh, that buys and sells buildings and wants to see what, you know, the most sophisticated investors and the most sophisticated owners in the world are thinking about uh, will benefit from the book. And also part of it is to provide a great introduction into the industry for technologists and venture capital investors and people that are making their first steps in, in targeting the industry or addressing some of its problems. Uh, I think it's a great introduction for them on, you know, how real estate works, how investors think, how, how operators think, you know, even, even down to like bread and butter stuff, like how many office buildings are there? Why are they so important? How much energy do they consume? You know, who owns what? Because even that, that word landlord often means five different things. You know, there's, there's oh, a person I, that operates I the building. All yeah. the time. Yeah. Uh, when you when you say the word landlord, I mean we have to make sure we're both in agreement of the context. Yeah, because it doesn't always mean you're you're totally right. It doesn't always mean the same thing. It can be confusing. Right, and I see many startups going and trying to sell something to the wrong person, for example, or not understanding who is making the decision or even what is driving the decision. You know, there's all sorts of things about real estate finance uh, that don't really make sense to someone who doesn't understand how it works. Like the fact, for example, oh, why is the landlord happy to keep some spaces empty instead of bringing in a tenant at a lower rent? But once you bring a tenant at a lower rent, you have to change stuff on the books. And then technically the valuation on paper changes in some cases because it's better to have an empty space with $100 written over it than a full space with $70 written over it. Mm. Uh, so there's, there's all sorts of, again, nuance and, and little things that, uh, that are very good for anyone from the outside to understand about real estate, especially if you're trying to drive change. So to understand which buttons to press and what really matters for different uh, entities in the kind of capital stack of real estate. Got it. Got it. Um, let, let's keep the conversation here rolling. Cause I think there's a lot of things that we could talk mm-hmm. through. And obviously, I mean, you have so many things. Um, yeah. Oh man, I am trying to pick and choose right now. I have my whole list. <laughs> let, let, I want to talk about a little bit more about the books. Rapid fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know what? I have a few of those. Uh, we'll, right. we'll talk about that different building trends because I want right. to get your opinion on two specific ones. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the information that's packed into the book, though, there's a handful of ways you can go about it. You can be opinionated. You can do interviews and do a lot of research. Mm-hmm. I'll walk me through a little bit about um, some of the data that you've got packed in there and what yep. I expect when I go through it. What are some of the resources I'll find um, baked into the content? So, so first, I mean, it's divided by asset type. So it's like retail, office, housing and lodging and industrial. So for each of these, there's a really nice introduction of, you know, why do they even matter? Like, why, why are these important? How big they are? Who are the main players? Uh, how valuable it is? Uh, how did it evolve to become what it is today? So again, a lot of history, both anecdotes and, and, and detailed information about, you know, how things were then, how are they now? Uh, and then we're looking at venture capital investment and its impact on that specific, uh, on some of the key players that impact that space. So, I mean, if, you know, if it's office, then obviously companies like WeWork and others, but also more exotic things and less, less famous examples. Yeah. Uh, and then each chapter looks at what are the barriers to innovation for that specific asset type. Uh, so, again, what are companies trying to do? What seems to work? What doesn't work? And what structural things prevent them from even responding properly. So how is a REIT different from, you know, a family company or from a private equity firm? Each one of these has different mandates, different incentives, different structures mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that have different advantages and disadvantages when you're coming to innovate and to invest in technology. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of that stuff. Yeah. And then there's, an, there's a, a few sections to the book yet too, mm-hmm. right? You've broken it down into like some big buckets and that's kind of yep. like you were just talking about, like you have those different buckets. Mm-hmm that you break it down. So I don't have to read it in a linear fashion. I really could leverage the book as a resource if I'm studying a particular topic. You could, yeah. I mean, you can jump straight to office or straight to, uh, to housing. But I think part of the interesting thing that is happening in real estate is that there's a lot of first blurring of the traditional boundaries between you know, what is hospitality and what is office and what is multifamily and what is lodging. Mm-hmm. And also there's a lot of strategic lessons to learn. So again, like there's a lot of stuff in retail and hospitality that anyone doing multifamily or office today should be aware of and should read about. Yeah. Uh, there's also some 
let's say retail is further ahead in being disrupted uh, as is hospitality compared to office or, or multifamily or industrial, but the way they were disrupted or reshaped by technology is very relevant for anyone who's looking at office today and trying to think, okay, is what I'm seeing real? Is it meaningful? How long will it take? Uh, so I do recommend reading the whole book, but it's definitely yeah. Okay, let's compulsory. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll probably read it through. I mean, I'm not very good at using books just as uh, resources. I generally read through them. I've got, uh, I, I give out a recommendation to people all the time. It's a mm-hmm. book on taxes and real estate. And usually the look that people give me, like, why would you <laughs> read a book about taxes and real estate? I think it's one of the best, but you know, it's fascinating, you know, but you know, that's just, I suppose that's the nerd in me. Okay. Let's talk through a few trends. Mm-hmm. You're talking about different ways of leveraging real estate. Yeah. I want to know, does modular construction, is it got a bright future or is this just an, uh, a fad that catches headlines? I think it's not a fad, but that's part of the problem that it's been around for so long and it still kind of failed to become a mainstream silver bullet that some people hoped that it would be. Yeah, uh, I think it has a growing role to play, uh, both for environmental reasons and obviously for cost and, and time-saving reasons. But unfortunately, the areas that are most affected by you know rent burdens or cost burdens uh, are areas that are very difficult to build in in general. And when it is possible to build, the cost of construction is not necessarily the main issue. It's more about the cost of land and how long it takes to you know to pull permits, etc. So you know if I got a piece of land in Manhattan, usually my problem is not whether I can build modular or not. Obviously, it could help that I build modular, sure. Uh, but uh, but often that's not a problem. So a, b- a bit like many other innovations, and I'll throw in blockchain there as well. There's a lot of like wonderful solutions for problems that they don't really solve. So I mean, with blockchain, I'm kind of piling on another trend here <laughs> without you asking. But, yeah. you know, people say, oh, we can, we can make real estate assets more liquid on the blockchain. And I'm like, yeah, but it's okay. So you can put it on the blockchain, but it doesn't mean that there's going to be something the on the other side. The moment you start talking about blockchain as a selling point, you have lost 95% of the yeah. potential audience. And it's fine if it's on blockchain. You know who does a really good job talking about this? Mm-hmm. Is um, oh, see this? I can't say her last name. Is Natalia from from Proppy AI? Yeah, yeah. On a panel or two together, I think previously. She does a great job of talking about this and like not focusing and and making everything about the blockchain. It's about mm-hmm. a secure platform that happens to leverage blockchain, and yeah. you know, and and not making that the technology isn't the focus. It's the solution. You know, mm-hmm. make the solution to focus. I think she does it really. And she, we had her on the show a few episodes back. Yeah. She gave me and a And like, I think they started in a few emerging markets or markets that didn't have some of the things that we already have elsewhere. So there was a hole yeah. anyway. And instead of filling it with, you know, just a database, they said, okay, we have, we can leapfrog and... Sure, yeah. And I, I think that, that, you know, in that instance, right, you know, blockchain, you know, so the way they were looking at it is as title transfers, uh, mm-hmm. title companies look to digitize. Yeah. They've started digitizing, but they're not secure. Yep. That actually makes them more susceptible than just staying as paper. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they might be speeding things up, but they're more susceptible. And I think there's a writer, her name is Ali J. Okay. Uh, she writes for the Forbes Real Estate Council. Mm-hmm. Um, and she wrote a story how she, in one of her own real estate transactions, was almost the victim of wire fraud. Uh-huh. You know, because it, all it takes is one person who's working at the title company to get their email hacked. Yeah. And then somebody sends out an email uh, with a change of direction of where the wire is supposed to go. And suddenly your entire down payment has just disappeared and nobody knows how that could have happened. But okay, let's move on to the next one here. Yes. What are your uh, hopes for 3D printed homes? Uh, Seems more like a gimmick than anything else at this point, I think. Uh, I think 3D printing in general has so far been mostly a dud. Uh, as far as consumer applications go, I mean, it, this might change in two years or in seven years. Uh, but I think so far, it doesn't seem to be having a, a, a major impact. And again, I think in real estate, the, the main problems are not about how to build, but they're about the process around it. But, but about people being customer centric and thinking of how people are actually going to use this building and then following yeah. up and seeing how they use it and making it better constantly and improving it just like any other customer centric industry does. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with the structure of our industry. So the person who builds the house is not the one who's going to operate it and the one who designs it will never visit it ever <laughs> and definitely not after someone lives there. 
And then once it is built, it's sold to someone else who then has to fix it. So the person who builds it doesn't care about that. Uh, so unlike any other consumer product, the, the whole process is broken in, in five different ways. Okay. And, and, that's, and that's the issue. That's why I think there's no single technology that can help. Uh, and the most innovative companies are just going to use mostly off-the-shelf stuff, but integrate them in all sorts of fun and interesting ways. Uh, yeah. So who are the companies right now in PropTech that, uh, or maybe impacting real estate from a tech perspective, so maybe not necessarily PropTech, stand out to you uh, for good reasons? So I'm going to say something fun here. Okay, let's do it. I think WeWork is probably still the most interesting company or one of the most interesting companies. For good in reasons? Space. Yeah, I think their impact on the industry so far, and also I think their potential impact in the future uh, is still incredible. Uh-huh. And I think because on the one hand, they're not trying to reinvent the wheel most of the time. They do on residential and schools, but hopefully they're over that. But I think as far <laughs> as the office market goes, they're really picking and choosing the best stuff that's available out there, uh, hiring good people to use that stuff well and to develop all sorts of variations of that stuff. And again, anything from, from measuring floor plans to designing to managing supply chains of furniture to managing customer success and registrations and all of these things. So it's a lot of little things that are very easy on their own, but together yeah. and at scale, they're extremely difficult. Uh, and, and I think people seem to underestimate how hard it is. It's a bit like people looking at a Starbucks and saying, oh, you know, I can open a coffee shop, you know, my, my wife will do this. Yeah, right. Do that. And, shopping you know, for an espresso machine. Yeah, we'll buy some chairs and, you know, what's, what's the big deal here? Yeah. Uh, but I think once you start doing it at scales or, or like, you know, Domino's Pizza, another amazing example of like, you know, not a tech yeah. company, but the way they use existing technology. Now, hold on, though. You can yeah. order a pizza from your phone and you mm-hmm. know right when it goes in the oven and yeah. who puts it in the oven. That's pretty damn cool. I agree. So, <laughs> so it's very hard to dismiss these things from the outside and say, oh, you know, I can open a pizza shop. So, okay, go open a pizza shop, but then try to open 10,000 of them. Yeah. Uh, and we'll see what happens. So I think WeWork is still in an amazing position to, uh, to put a dent into the industry and to be the one that is integrating all of these new technologies and new ways of building things uh, and iterating on them properly. Yeah. Because if you just throw 3D printed houses on some traditional developer, I don't know if too many good things will happen. So do you classify WeWork as a tech company or real estate company? I classify it as the answer doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, I would say they're not a tech company, but I think the obsession with are they or aren't they a tech company is completely misguided. Because again, you just spoke about Domino's Pizza. Yeah, Domino's Pizza is not a tech company. Does it mean that they don't use technology to kick everyone else's ass? No, they do. I love ordering pizzas from Domino's. It's so easy. Yeah. And, and I think the general idea of a tech company might be a dying kind of breed. I think the last, Interesting. The last 15 years were about software eating the world, in the words of Mark Andreessen. From, yeah, but software itself... But now I think we're going to see the world eating software because, you know, the, 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 growth, software. the growth that remains unlocked for the next 20 years is all in industries that are asset heavy and regulation heavy, you know, real estate, healthcare, education, logistics. You can't, you can't do that and have software margins. You have to get your hands dirty and you have to have lower margins, but the scale is immense. Sure. The, sure. the lack of competition and sophisticated players is incredible. You know, if you look at Airbnb playing against Marriott and Expedia and Booking, these are sophisticated and well-capitalized companies. But in the office world, there's nobody, you know, even the big companies are small, they're unsophisticated. They might look big, but they have very little free capital to invest in technology and innovation because they have to pay the banks and they have to pay their, their investors. Uh, yeah. So there's so much room to do amazing things. And, and I think we'll see a bunch of companies growing and becoming multi-billion dollar companies in this space. Okay, so then who in PropTech or companies that are impacting real estate from a tech perspective stand out to you for not so good reasons? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I encourage all entrepreneurs. Um, I, I'm not going to diss anyone here. Okay, that's fine. But I think, I mean, yeah, I think blockchain makes more noise than it's worth. Uh, I think modular construction actually can do amazing things and is doing amazing things, but just is not going to, I don't see it becoming a mainstream solution anytime soon, but it can still be an amazing and valuable solution in all sorts of places. Uh, And I think generally the whole prop tech field over the past few years of 
it's becoming somewhat frothy. I mean, we have too much of, of everything. You know, there's 50 tenant engagement apps and 50 uh, whatever automated valuation apps and 50 <laughs> elevator sensors. I think we're going to, and also in the co-working, you know, there's like 350 operators or something yeah. or more. I think we're going to see generally a lot of consolidation happening over the next few years, which is healthy right. for the industry. But, but yeah, there's way too much of almost everything. Yeah, I, I, think, I think you're right. There's, a, there's, there's totally a ton of consolidation that has to happen. And this happens when the market goes in swings, you know? Yeah. Um, you have times of expansion and development and creativity and really pushing the envelope. And then you have times where, you know, one of those 50 companies gets it right and you either have so-called a trail of bodies or a consolidation, you know, yeah. and that paves the future. So um, let's, let's shift a little bit. So obviously we can't talk about prop tech and where it's headed without mm-hmm. talking about fundraising. Yeah. Uh, every single day or every week, you know, we see headlines of companies raising money, of course. Right. You know, it makes it sound like it's easy. Anybody. I just raised $50 million just on the way here, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you just, yeah, so, so I wanted to get your perspective. I mean, because obviously, I mean, you're, you're, you're kind of crossing the chasm here, if you will, mm-hmm. of like traditional real estate, uh, big multifamily and tech. Yeah. Um, where do you see, like, do you see this first as a bubble? Do, do you think we're just... People are just kind of caught up in the hype. The so-called not-com bubble is popping. Mm-hmm. Or is PropTech a little bit different in that we just haven't even gotten started? I, so I think, I mean, a bubble and we just barely got started can both happen at the same time. So if you look at the internet oh, in 1999, you know, was it a bubble? Yes. Was it the, the most amazing thing that ever happened? Yes. And when I was in China, I was saying the same thing, you know. Is it overheated? Yes. Is it crazy? Yes. But is it really an amazing transformation? Also, yes. So what I used to say in China, that it's not a bubble, it's like a soda. So, you know, there's all sorts of little bubbles, there's all sorts of little things that, you know, have to pop. But the whole thing in itself, there's still going to be a lot of liquid left in the end. Uh, I think, again, I already said that there's going to be a lot of cleaning up to do and a lot of consolidation. But I think there's two, two interesting things that are happening. One, as I mentioned, I think there's tons of capital in the world and it has to flow into these asset-heavy industries if it's looking for growth and it is looking for growth. Mm -hmm. So I think the capital will continue to flow. Everyone thinks now, oh, SoftBank learned their lesson, they're going to stop. I don't think it's going to stop. Even if they stop, there's just more money coming in. SoftBank are just a symptom. They don't decide where the money flows. People are throwing money and and someone has to to funnel it. So they volunteered and, you know, collect a coupon. Uh, so that's one thing. The second thing that I see more locally in our industry is people are investing in, in venture and in technology because it's easier than actually innovating and changing. So I see a lot of large landlords and large investors that I deal with. Uh, so I mean, the first thing that they would do is just be in complete denial. But once they're over that stage and their anger and acceptance and all of that, then they say, okay, we need to do something about it. Now, when they look around, okay, are we going to fire ourselves and try to start hiring different people and learn all these new things? Oh, it sounds like a headache. Maybe we'll just throw $10 million into a PropTech fund or a startup and, you know, glide for a couple more years before we have to do something more meaningful. So I think we're at that stage now where a lot of owners and investors see investment as like, you know, an easy solution and an easy way to kind of get acquainted with what's happening, with keeping their hand on the pulse. And it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing and it's a good way to start. And I think as they get more confidence, they might start transforming, transforming more of their own companies. But now they're throwing money at, uh, at the learning curve in a way. Mm. Yeah, I appreciate that, that take there. And I mean, I'm, personally, I think that we're just getting started. I think there's a lot to a lot of room to expand and I appreciate your thoughts on, mm-hmm. you know, and bringing that back. I mean, obviously we haven't, we've only had a few opportunities for cycles in yeah. tech funding. Um, you know, there just hasn't been that many opportunities for us to see a, a, a true bubble, if you will, and, and, and recession in just that space. But um, you know, when you tie it into the physical assets and things that are regulation heavy and things that are slow moving and difficult to move, I mm-hmm. mean, there's a lot of opportunity to improve yeah. there even if it's incremental. I would add one, one very important thing. I think once there's a downturn or slowdown in the general economy and in real estate, 
I think that would be a wonderful opportunity for many more technologies to be adopted, for new mm-hmm. operating models to, uh, to spread. So I think that in the morning after the crisis, real estate will be a heavier user of technology. It will be more flexible, more service, more customer focused, uh, yeah. employing more technology and tech people. Uh, so even though some companies might get hurt in the process, I definitely think that would actually expedite uh, the kind of prop tech revolution, for lack of a better name. Yeah, and it's not something I hope for, but I I believe you're correct in that. Mm-hmm. So, well, let's uh, we're going to totally shift here and get to what I think is my favorite part or the most fun part of the show. Uh, mm-hmm. This is a segment I like to call "For the Future." Oh yeah. Uh, so this is where I get to ask each guest who comes on the show to give their best predictions based on the following four questions. Okay. Wow. Are you ready to play? Let's go. Okay. Now I had to change the first question. Okay. Uh, but that's okay. Um, Question number one, what's the impact of your book one year from today? Oh, it's going to change the world. I think uh, Adam Newman is going to uh, be seen reading it in the Maldives between the surfing expeditions. Uh, and then from there, it's just going to catch fire. You know, Kim and Kanye is going to read it. Everyone, you know, it's going to be, an, and I think Trump <laughs> trying to explain why a real estate person can really help rethink the, the economy and all the problems we have. It's going to use it on the campaign trail. Uh, he's a real estate guy. He should get it. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, and I think then him and Newman together will probably going to form a new ticket and it's going to be an amazing year. Uh, so... <laughs> That's the best answer we've ever gotten. That's for sure. You know, actually, you know, if I could, if I could pick out one person, I, I need someone who's listening to this, who's got a connection, get me connected to DJ Envy. I love uh, DJ Envy's a, a very popular radio host in New yeah. York. Are you familiar with him? Yeah, I've heard of him. Oh, from the, the, yeah, from the Breakfast Club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get him. He, he does a lot of real estate these days. All right. Got to get him a copy of the book. Noted. All right. Uh, question number two, what's the housing market going to look like one year from now? Hmm. That's a tough one because it really comes back to interest rates and it looks like we're, we're in a crazy experiment that doesn't look like it wants to end. So, I mean, <laughs> personally, I don't think interest rates will ever go up. I mean, I think they'll keep trying to raise them, but then they'll find a reason to bring them back down. Uh, and I think we're already seeing it starting to warm up the housing market, the single family housing market again. Uh, a lot of people are refinancing, but also we're starting to see more and more people buying new houses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, so I'd say tough call. I'm, I'm personally, I'm sitting on the sidelines and just waiting for it to come down, but it might go up another yeah, know, significant yeah, chuck up before it, that happens. Could be, you know, people were saying that in 2015 right. and then they said it in 2016 and then 17 and they're like, well, it's too late. I can't buy it now. And it's yeah. I mean, I'm, later. I'm conservative by nature. So I'm, I'm, I'm not going to buy any real estate over the next 12 months and hopefully there you go. Okay. take too long. All right. The returns on investment on a book could actually be very much higher than a, a percentage wise. <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Question number three, what's one industry trend you think will continue, but you wish would go away? Oh, wow. That's interesting. Uh, I think just... Traditional rent by landlords is something I think will continue and I hope will go away. Oh, that's fascinating. Break that down. I think at the moment, landlords look at the world and they look at it using their traditional metrics, especially office. And these metrics are telling them, wow, things are great. They've never been good, as good. You know, oh, occupancy is really high and rents are really high and we're filling spaces really quickly. But what's really happening is that many or sometimes most of these spaces are actually being leased by companies like WeWork and Notel and Convene and Breather. And these companies then repackage these spaces into what the market actually wants and what tenants actually want. Uh, So we're seeing landlords losing even more touch with their actual customers and having even a worse understanding of what their customers want and need. Uh, And I think that until there's a crisis, we're just going to see more of that. So Landlords have a lot of reasons to uh, feed their denial, uh, which is something that I wish would have changed earlier. And it's changing with some landlords who are more open-minded and kind of being proactive and even cannibalizing their existing comfortable lives in order to uh, be ready for the future. Yeah. Uh, but, I th- but I think that across the board, generally, we're going to see more and more that gap between what landlords offer and what tenants want continue to, uh, to broaden. Very cool. Uh, question number four. This is the final for the future. What's one final thing? Final four. 
<laughs> Final four. I need to get a sound bite that says that. Uh, push a button. What's one thing you believe will dramatically change or fade away in real estate as a result of technological advances? I think one fun thing that I want to see, so, you know, both you and I started our careers building websites and digital properties. Yeah. And the interesting things about those sites on the web is that most of them don't cost money, but it doesn't mean that they're free. They're monetized in all sorts of ways because they collect data and they know all sorts of things about us. I think once we have enough interesting ways and, and ideally customer uh, centric ways, but also, you know, conscious of privacy and then of people's dignity, once we have enough ways to, to monetize people's presence, uh, I think it might be cool to see spaces that don't charge rent at all, like to see models that are more mm. web-like, you know, whether they're advertising supported or affiliate fees supported uh, based on actual physical traffic in the same way that uh, online traffic is monetized. So to, down to even living somewhere for free, but you know, paying for all the other stuff that, that you order and it's all managed by a central entity. And I think we're, we are going to see that and we're seeing traces of that already with that. I mean, there's lots of products that are arbitraged by partnership deals or yeah. other you know, products and services that are connected to a transaction to mm-hmm. make that one transaction much lesser expensive and, yeah. and you, know, you monetize through other services. You know, I'm gonna give a little plug to Avail because you guys know that's what I represent. That's but- what we're here to do. Well, you know, that's one of the things that we we look at. We're looking at the whole transaction of when a tenant Uh is into a unit. There's a whole lot of things that happen. You get new furniture. You need help moving. Your cable setup, your utility Mm -hmm. setup. And we're looking at that entire process, thinking through that. That's one, you know, we partner with Lemonade for renter's insurance. Mm -hmm. So the tenants can get their renter's insurance without ever leaving the app. You you sign the lease, get renter's insurance. And everyone's happy. Landlord's happy because, you know, they've got extra coverage on the property. Tenant's happy. They didn't have to shop. Easy experience. You know, that's why I think everybody should do it. But. Sounds good to me. There we go. I'll sign you up after the show. Okay. (laughs) We're moving into the last three. Uh, These questions are so our listeners get to know you a little bit better uh, personally. So outside of your own book and editing Mm -hmm. it, what are you reading? Oh, I like to read a lot of history. Uh, So now I'm kind of on a roll of... uh, of maritime history. So reading oh. about the history of Portugal and the Netherlands and Venice and the Ottoman Empire and Amerigo Jewish Vespucci. pirates in the Caribbean. Uh, <laughs> so actually that's the last book that I'm reading, which is about how all sorts of Jewish merchants from you know Portugal and Spain that were kicked out into the new world uh, were, all, wow. were, were involved in all sorts of uh, unsavory things. Uh, but lots of fun and adventure. All right. Yeah. Question number two. And I'm also reading, like you oh. said, the thing about real estate tax. I'm reading a book about financial statements because that's what I do for fun as well. Oh, what's the book title? Just, I think just financial statements or <laughs> like our understanding. <laughs> <laughs> you know, an accountant came up with that or something. I mean, yeah. it's called a, what are we going to call it? Financial statements. Yeah. Oh man, that's good. All right. Question number two here. Who are you learning from? Where am I learning from? Wow. I think from my daughter who is like 10 weeks old. I think she's taught me more than anyone, I guess, <laughs> the last year. Or <laughs> How to value before. sleep. Uh, yeah, to value sleep. And even just the fact that every person was born and was loved the way I love her really gives you a perspective about every other human being. Yeah. Uh, hopefully made me slightly a better person. Uh, but I think beyond that, I really, again, I go back to history as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't necessarily have any idols that are uh, alive. I just have a lot of people that are, you know, that lived interesting and meaningful lives. And I like to learn about them. Uh, yeah. Very cool. All right. Question number three and the final one here, what inspires you? What inspires me? I guess I have to go back to my family on that as well. So, I mean, I, I think that, and if I have to, I think the way technology can be used to create amazing, unique lifestyles. Uh, I mean, one inspiration that I have, speaking of individuals, I think like Ben Thompson, for example, is a technology blogger or newsletterer. Yep. And I think the fact that as one person, you can just sit in your bedroom and write a little email every day about what interests you and have the financial freedom to do that, I think is an amazing thing and an amazing opportunity that we have today that we didn't have before. And I'm fascinated by these models. I mean, it's, it's somewhat related to how I already live. But I think the ability to, to educate people online, 
to create stuff that is meaningful and resonates with people, even if you've never met them, and to make a nice living off of that and to be able to, you know, be accountable only to those people and not to advertisers or anyone else or employers, I think is an amazing thing that that always guides me in the choices that I make on how I spend. You're talking about Ben Thompson's Stratechery, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I'm a fanboy from, we both lived in Asia. So we got, I was, got acquainted with his work very, very early. I was an early subscriber, I think five years ago or so. Yeah. It's just Ben Thompson on uh, Twitter for those listening that may not be familiar with him. Uh, cause he doesn't really, he's not just real estate, like yeah. he's tech, you know, a lot of things. I, I'm not as close a follower, but I, I knew mm-hmm. talking about right away. So, well, very cool. Um, George, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate your time. I, again, apologize that I cannot get the, the role of the, the name, right? Oh, my second book, you'll get it. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Give me a rethinking piece. drawer. My next book. <laughs> hey, before we close out the show. Um, so for people who want to get in touch with you mm-hmm. or uh, they want to order the book or learn more about, about the book, what are all the different ways they can do that? So the book rethinking real estate is available anywhere books are sold. So Barnes and Noble, Amazon, Waterstones, wherever you buy books, anywhere in the world. Uh, in terms of getting in touch with me, I try to make it as hard as possible. So the easiest way is on Twitter at Dror Poleg, D-R-O-R-P-O-L-E-G. Uh, that's where I spend a lot of my time. And that's the easiest way to connect with me. Other places are a little more difficult. There we go. Well, I'll put the link to your Twitter in the comments section on the TechNest website here so that people can, uh, if they want to tweet you, uh, maybe you'll, you'll tell them where they can send the courier pigeon to reach you. <laughs> Excellent. Um, but, hey, I really appreciate the conversation and, and the detail of everything. Uh, best of luck and congrats on writing the book. Thank I'm you, looking mate. forward to actually getting a chance to get my hands on a physical copy to read through the whole thing. Uh, and then until then, let's, uh, we'll see you later. Thanks. Well, that's it for today. Thanks so much for listening to the TechNest podcast. Hey, don't forget, you can get on the email list. You never miss an upcoming episode. That's technest.io. That's T-E-C-H-N-E-S-T dot I-O. Get on the email list. Uh, go to the App Store, whether you found us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you found us. Leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. And if you've got a guest or someone that you'd like to recommend, or if you think that you'd be a great guest on the show, hey, send me an email, nate at realteampanda.com. That's nate at realteampanda.com. See you guys later.